Teaching students science can have its challenges, especially if it means asking kids to read dense paragraphs about complicated ideas. But what about teaching science through comics? This effort won this year's Accelerate Civic Pitch Competition. The Cleveland Leadership Center competition asked for ideas from people to make their neighborhoods better through social change, arts and culture, education, and more. Welcome to The Sound of Ideas. I'm Jenny Hamill. Today, we'll speak with the winner of the Accelerate Pitch Competition, as well as some other top contenders. We'll also hear from a set of teens who won the Teen Accelerate portion for creating a garden and natural beauty at a foster care center. Later in the show, we'll look at Cleveland State University's origins and history with the civil rights movement. It's the Sound of Ideas from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Jenny Hamill. Good morning, and thanks for joining us on this Monday. An effort to make science accessible by creating educational comics won last week's 10th annual Accelerate Civic Pitch Competition launched in 2015 by the Cleveland Leadership Center. This contest helps everyday people create change in their own communities and neighborhoods, including in the areas of arts and culture, education, health and well-being, social change and thriving neighborhoods. This year's finalists also included an indoor quilt trail and a curated dining experience that partners with immigrant-owned and operated restaurants. We start today's show by talking to some of these innovators, another in our Makers Monday series, and in a little bit later in the show, we'll hear from the winners of the Teen Accelerate contest. We'll end the show with a look at a new exhibit at Cleveland State University, celebrating the school's 60th anniversary through the lens of the civil rights movement in Cleveland. But first, joining me now in studio are Laura Balliot, who won the grand prize for her idea, Cool School Comics. Laura, welcome to you. Hi, thank you. Sarah Kidner, a Cleveland high school principal, won the Technovation category for her initiative, Micro Scholarship Mentor Match. Sarah, welcome to you. Good morning. And we have Ariana Smith, one of the finalists whose idea focuses on student mental health. Ariana, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. And if you want to talk about one of the ideas implemented in your community or have a question, you can call in at 866-578-0903. You can email us at soi at ideastream.org, or you can tweet us. We're at Sound of Ideas. So, Laura, I'm going to start with you. How did you feel when you were announced as the overall winner of the competition? I'm still in shock. Absolutely. Like it was um, everyone was so great. And I I was sitting there crossing my fingers. It was definitely a great surprise. But of course, we need to really um, talk about your idea and why you think it won the competition, you are a middle school science teacher. So you came up with a concept called Cool School Comics. So tell us a little bit more about your background and how it influenced your idea. Okay, so I completed my student teaching in Cleveland Municipal School District and then spent a majority of my career at Lakewood City Schools at their Lakewood City Academy, which was a school for at-risk youth. And I was always encountering kids that didn't want to read. So it didn't matter how animated I got with my lessons, um, making things explode or shoot across the classroom. Like, it didn't matter how excited and passionate I was. My kids weren't reading. And those tests were approaching, and I was kind of desperate. And so I started doodling down the information, the content in a cartoon format. And it 
worked. Like the kids were blown away and their jaws dropped and they were engaged in reading the content. So I've been going with that ever since. Okay. And so how did you pitch it at the competition? Um, I started by with the analogy of how airlines have the trifold for emergency evacuation procedures. The inside is mostly images. And the reason why airlines do that is because it's such a diverse population of passengers. There's, you don't know how well people read or what language they speak, so they present it all very visually. And in our classrooms, a lot of people still lean on textbooks, which we have more diverse classrooms these days. Um, we have more English language learners, more um, special education needs, and we need to diversify our, our approach to teaching science as well to meet all their needs. So did you have visual display at yeah. the competition and kind of show them here is a science, uh, you know, concept or or issue and here's how I would kind of elaborate on that through comics? Yeah. So I started with um, the one side of the poster had um, it looked like a, a textbook basically for symbiosis. And I, point, I was discussing how, you know, the textbook, you can see it's a lot of words and how reluctant readers tend to see a wall of words when they see textbooks and they shut down. And then when I got to the end of it, I flipped it over and you could see the vivid comic and why it's so engaging. And I think everybody could see just because it's so colorful and it instantly ropes you in. Um, so the comic was how I ended it. All right, let's go to Sarah. Tell us more about your initiative, Micro Scholarship Mentor Match. Why is it important to focus on first generation college students? Yeah, so this is obviously very important to me. I'm a first-generation college student myself, but the gap that we're trying to address is if both your parents went to college, you have an 82% chance of getting your degree. And if neither of your parents attended school, you only have a 20% chance of getting your college degree. And that gap is because students don't have the financial support, the resources in order to persevere and get to graduation day. And so we're trying to wrap students with additional supports, which Starts with emergency funding um, for if students can't return in the fall. 28% of students drop out after year one mm. um, if they're first-generation students. So filling that emergency gap through micro scholarships, meaning someone is the captain, um, and they solicit their friends to donate $10, $20, $50 to meet that gap, which is typically less than $2,000. Um, and then that whole village works together for that student, offering them additional supports, whether that's linking them to internship opportunities, summer work so they can help get their finances together, um, and answering questions about how do you navigate financial aid and petitioning the dean's office to take a course out of sequence and all these things that you would know if you had access um, to people who've already made it to graduation day. So your pitch is essentially partnering uh, first-generation college students with both a mentor and the ability to get, let's say, a financial boost or scholarship if needed. Right. So the micro scholarships, it's, you know, the example was I had a former student. Um, he was $1,500 short. And so we got a village together. 59 different people pitched in a few dollars here and there nice. to meet that need. Um, and then we were able to continue to support him along the way. So he can reach out to any of those 59 people, right, and say, hey, I have a question. I'm not sure. I'm trying to change my major. How is this going to impact my graduation? Can you help me look at my course sequence to see if I can still graduate on time? There's advisors at the college level. But sometimes you just need somebody who's going to give you parental advice or community advice to talk through some of these things and need some additional time. So it's really about both the financial need um, and the village of support. All right, Ariana, you put in your My Why section that you've been a longtime advocate of youth and you're an educator. So tell us about your background and how your idea came to be. 
Absolutely. Um, so I have been an educator for over 10 years. So I have taught my students the importance of literacy, building an entrepreneurial mindset, um, how to develop their leadership skills. And so one of the things that I had even put into my pitches over the years of me engaging with my students, um, you know, you hear stories from your students about things that are going on at home, things that are going on at school, and like the various stressors ultimately that are impacting their lives. And for me, as a person that always wants to help, I felt frustrated by the fact that there were not more things that I could do to help my students and really seeing where some of the gaps were at because a lot of times we know that it's not they're not um, there's resources that are out there but a lot of times it's the education and knowledge of where these resources are at so the mental health matters you summit really provides that space for some of our various program providers and healthcare advocates to be a part of the conversation with our students but also for the students voice to actually be heard and be a part of the conversation oftentimes our students are talked at just because of how schools are set up um, so really having the space for students to express what are some of the things that they really need help with and how can really help them in achieving that is really important. Okay, so tell us, kind of give us an example of how exactly your pitch would work. Absolutely. So with the Mental Health Matters Summit in the fall, we'll have over 300 high school students from various high schools from across the greater Cleveland area convening downtown at the City Club of Cleveland for this Mental Health Matters Youth Summit. So students will have a chance to participate in various roundtable activities or discussions. We'll bring in various speakers, both motivational speakers and healthcare professionals. That way we can ensure that the information being shared is accurate and can actually help to speak to the needs of our student groups. Um, and also ensuring that there are people in this space to help to engage in some of those tough conversations because we never know what's going on at homes mm -hmm. um, and what different students are dealing with. And sometimes a large group discussion is not maybe the space for them to have um, to be able to express some of those things. So ensure that there's the right people in place to help them navigate through some of those tough times too. And do you feel that especially with having gone through the pandemic, there is a more amplified focus on a student's mental health and how life is going personally at home and then within classroom as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. Even when we think about like social skills, certain things that were just a commonality for us prior to the pandemic, or it's a little bit harder for some of our students to have to work through now. Um, and unfortunately, in school, we're teaching them so many things academically and preparing them for various things just, you know, in the real world. But we don't always have that time or the resources to really pour into students in terms of making sure that their mental health is being taken care of and helping them to figure out the best strategies or best practices in times where anxiety or depression or stress may be really you know, weighing down on them a lot. Okay, so what I think is really awesome about the competition is the fact that it is a notion or an idea, but you can execute it and make it real. Mm -hmm. So, Laura, with your Cool School comics, tell me kind of what the top prize comes with and how you might leverage this to make these comics more available or create more comics um, in the science field. Okay, so the top price is $5,000. And my plan is to use that to help revamp my website. Right now, I designed my website and on the surface it looks awesome. Some people say that, but I know there's so many glitches and I need to hire someone that would help me turn this into a more professional platform so that teachers can go on and access this easily. Um, I'd love to turn it into a subscription model so districts have access to purchasing it, giving their teachers unlimited access. And that way it's not something that teachers have to buy out of pocket. The districts can support their teachers this way. So you're actually making the comics yourself? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And they're, um, they're not comic books. They're one page print and go. Like they're like infographics that come with lesson plans and um, worksheets and they are aligned with the next generation science standards. So it's grades two through nine 
so they can just pop on and look whatever topic they need. So I, I, I must ask, listener Mitchell tweeted in and asked a question specific to you. Mm-hmm. Concerned that the comics format dumbs down science too much. What would you say to that? I've actually had this question a few times. Um, I argue that comics are actually kind of a gateway at this point. So kids these days gravitate towards graphic novels and they get to the point where they're reading giant books that are all graphic novels. So kids that are struggling readers feel like they've accomplished something by reading these giant books. So my argument is that comics are that gateway where kids suddenly realize that I I can read this and I can understand science. And then as they build that um, self-esteem with reading, then they can they know that they can handle tougher text, essentially. So it's interesting because you have this science background and emphasis Mm -hmm. and it's why you won the competition. And yet you're very cognizant of the fact that reading Mm -hmm. uh, is an obstacle. And I think also with the addition of phones and social media, Mm -hmm. everyone's attention spans and ability to read large tomes has has gone out the window. So um, how much are you thinking about a student's reading skills and how we need to address that. I feel like it's the, uh, the center of everything that I'm doing because my kids, um, like I said in my pitch, they weren't reading. They wouldn't read the test questions. They wouldn't read directions. And so this is just, they have to read. And sure. um, so literacy, and this is for all subjects, like even math, like you need to be able to read, especially with a standardized test at this point. Everything is extended response or chunky word problems. Um, so it's all about reading. It doesn't have to be English language arts. Every class needs to have literacy work factored in. Sorry. So we'd love to hear what you think about these ideas so far. If you want to participate in the conversation, we've got that toll-free number. It's 866-578-0903. And our email, soi at ideastream.org. So Sarah, I want to know what your prize was and how you will continue to to kind of make your pitch into something that's sustaining and uh, continued. Yes. So for the Technovation Award, um, we get $3,500. And it's really about building out a platform in order to make this system work. So we have a gen1circle.com, which will be our website. And it's really about trying to make an algorithm to match mentors to students. Um, Because right now we can do it by hand. Uh, You know, our first crack is going to try and take um, 10 students from three different local universities, uh, Tri-C, Cleveland State, University of Akron. And we're going to try and uh, build them and their villages out and work out all of the kinks on how that might work to make sure that they're successful. Uh, but then long term, it's exponential. We know there's such a need for first generation students to get this support. So how can we build that system out so that it's matching automatically, whether that's through an alumni uh, match where they both went to the same university, through they're both engineers or they're both pre-med, you know, so they're matching with people in their career field. Um, so it's really about surrounding them with people who they have those similarities with. Uh, the traditional mentor system tends to match like one-on-one. Um, and sometimes you might not have a great match with the one-on-one mentor. You know, you might not have the similarities. Um, but with this, you have a group of mentors that you can work together with. And a lot of the people who've offered their support up have been first-generation students. So having that shared experience and that life experience really will help the students to be successful. And I think it's such a great notion because I I was formerly the education reporter here before taking this role. And uh, 
certainly did stories and reporting on first-generation college students. And and just the notion that a couple thousand dollars or not having an older person to kind of reflect, I'm going through this hard time with school or I need some feedback, might be the make or break is really kind of a heartbreaking notion. So um, when did you recognize, hey, first-generation college students need this help? So I myself needed the help. Um, I was $1,200 short. I actually took a four-credit science class instead of a three-credit science class and put myself in a hole where I wasn't sure I was going to be able to return sophomore year um, and had my housing canceled and was really in a panic. And so I did have people from the community step up and support me in navigating how to get back on track with it. Um, But now as a high school principal, I see this unfortunately all too often and the students will reach back out to us and they will let us know here's something that's going on in my life Um, and when we were able to help our first student um, through the process the person who actually donated the last $300 was a former student of mine who's now a social worker and he said you know the reason why I chipped in that large amount at the end was this was my lived experience as well I um, almost left after my freshman year uh, because of a financial gap and so you know keep hearing the stories of heartbreak Um, it was like that 28% is usually um, such a, well, it sounds like a small problem, you know, less than $2,000, but it's uh, insurmountable sure. for students who are in the struggle, you know, and trying to figure out how to get your next meal and trying to make sure that you can figure this out. And a lot of self-doubt, you know, they think maybe college isn't for me, sure. you know, this, this is, it, it's an exit for them. Um, so this is really um, a problem that's been spanning the last 20 years since I was in college. And it's something that, um, you know, we need to work together as a community to resolve. Great. Ariana, let's talk uh, for a couple minutes before we have to to get out of this portion of the conversation about what you've seen when it comes to mental health. What are some of the biggest issues that these students are facing? Absolutely. I think it's figuring out the healthiest way to release some of the things that they have pent up inside of them. Sure. Right. Um, I think a lot of times our students don't necessarily know what the why is oftentimes and then creating a safe space for them to feel like they trust a person to really kind of open up and share some of those things with and then consistency within that. Um, I think a lot of times too, not being able to see themselves in the person that they're talking to also mm-hmm. potentially presents a problem. So the why, you know, it's such a range because no one student is the same um, in terms of the things that they're dealing with and what their home lives look like um, and just how they process things is also different. Yeah, I think that's great. The idea of a summit where you gather professionals Mm -hmm. and some of these students together um, to talk just about mental health and say it's not something that you need to stigmatize or can't talk about um, seems like a great idea. Well, I want to congratulate you all. Laura Balliette, Accelerate winner for Cool School Comics. Thank you. Sarah Kidner, Technovation winner for the Micro Scholarship Mentor Match. And Ariana Smith, finalist for the MHM Youth Summit. Thanks all for coming in. And again, congratulations to all of you. Thank Thank you. you. Time now for a quick break. When we return, the winners of the Teen Accelerate Contest share their story about their idea providing home gardening kits to children in foster care. It's The Sound of Ideas. I'm Jenny Hamill. We'll be right back. You're with The Sound of Ideas from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks for staying with us this hour. Today, we're talking to some of the winners of this year's Accelerate contest. The Accelerate pitch competition helps fund ideas from Northeast Ohioans in several areas, ranging from quality of life to social change and beyond. We already heard from the grand prize winner, the Technovation winner, and a finalist, but now it's time for all the adults to get a run for their money. 
we're going to meet two winners of the Teen Accelerate Contest. The teens who took home the grand prize this year found inspiration amid grief after their friend passed away. They helped create a garden at a local foster care center. To learn more about the Growing Hope Initiative, we have the creators of this idea here with us, Lily Moran and Gabby Ransom, both from Hathaway Brown School. Welcome to both of you. Thank you so much Hi, for welcome. having us. Thank Glad you. Glad to have you. Have you used one of these gardening kits before? Do you have a comment or a question? You can call in toll-free 866-578-0903. You can email us at soi at ideastream.org or you can tweet us. We're at Sound of Ideas. So, Lily and Gabby, first I have to say I'm so sorry for the loss of your friend. Um, that is, uh, you know, obviously incredibly rough. And uh, I- I'm curious how that affected your idea and coming up with this gardening idea. So when we initially, after our friends passed away, both their family and Scout herself, which was one of the girls who did pass away, were involved with an organization called Fostering Hope, which helps foster kids in Ohio. And they take in about 1,600 foster kids each year, so they're very impactful. And so we started volunteering with them. And from our volunteering, we found a garden on their grounds that had been kind of uncared for, and we wanted to restore it. So we raised money, and we decided to restore the garden. And that's how we started getting involved with Fostering Hope. Do you want to add to that? Yeah. um, You know, it just was kind of hard and stuff. And so kind of partnering with Fostering Hope was like a way to kind of like help honor them, Mm -hmm. in a sense, and kind of carry on like the legacy that they started. Mm. So they were involved with this foster care center. So obviously helping foster care children was important to them. Yes. Yes. And so um, why a garden? Was was there something about it that you felt, hey, it's beautiful. We can add to the experience of these foster care kids by, by kind of turning a place that might have been not ignored, but uh, not as uh, thriving into something that's uh, beautiful to look at and, and all of that. So we did a lot of research on gardening, and there's a lot to support of evidence to support that gardening is very therapeutic, yeah. especially for children in foster care. It was a place for them to go and watch things grow and to kind of, as they grow, the plants are growing with them. Just being outside and having that space that they can go to, all of those things are very beneficial. Um, so we wanted to, you know, help them Re- restore that and have that again. But. Okay, so you 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 made this garden flourish, yes. and then you had an idea to turn the garden into these kits. So now yes. tell me more about that. Yeah, so kind of since the garden at the old uh, location got moved and they didn't have it at their new location, mm. we wanted to kind of still keep it with the kids, like bring it with the like bring it to the kids, and so that's how we came up with the kits because they're more of an individual like way to give it to multiple people instead of having this big garden but you have like a small kit and then you can also like then personalize your kit with like some of the more artistic parts of it where we have like a little rock that you can paint and stuff like that so like the artistic way to express yourself as well as also like seeing like the kit like 
seeing the flower, the bean grow, and just kind of like having that like feeling like you're taking care of something and it just kind of like helps make you feel better about yourself in like the long run. Sure. Mm-hmm. We had a little garden, um, my, my son in the backyard this summer, and I could tell he was really into it and, yeah. and wanted to check on the vegetables and everything. So I, I get that. Um, so who who... Which of these foster care kids now have access to these kits? Uh, what did you win with your prize to kind of make this, you know, this idea into something that's a little more long term? So in preparation for the competition, we had already spoken with Karen Carter, who is the executive director of Fostering Hope. Sure. And we had made plans over last summer to create these boxes and distribute them. But we were lacking funds and resources. So with this competition, we had a plan of the cost of everything we needed to buy and everything else was ready. We just needed some sort of funding. And so with this prize money, we are able to now create the boxes and get them distributed to Fostering Hope and now more recently, uh, UH or Rainbow Babies Hospitals. Oh, that's great. So it's a so it, it's spreading. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's great. And so um, I'm curious, has this whole experience made you think more about foster care children and their experience and kind of what you can do in your community to help your neighbor or to help children in need? Yeah, I feel like it definitely like kind of like was a step back just to see like how not just how like everyone else's life gets impacted in different ways and just kind of to see like how you know people live lives like differently and I feel like after doing like research and stuff and figuring out like how many foster kids are in Ohio and figuring out like how even after they turn 18 like they don't really have like a lot of places to go after that it just kind of is like we want to like be able to start something that maybe can help them just feel more confident about themselves and like just start a program where they can just build up and like I feel like it's just really impactful. And I ask you the same question. Yeah, uh, definitely. Especially after volunteering there for a long time, I used to go and we would make birthday boxes or bags for when children are just starting to go into foster care. It had a toothbrush, some soap, a blanket. And so when you're creating those things, you kind of get to see exactly what they have been needing and what they are lacking, especially when we're creating birthday gifts for them. You really think about, oh my gosh, their birthdays are something that we need to create a gift for them and recognize it or else no one else really does. And thinking about that is really impactful and it makes you want to make a difference. I'm interested. Can I ask both of you what you're interested in maybe doing as adults for for a job or a career? Oh, um, I want to go into the communications field, actually. Oh, okay. And so, um, but I also really have, like, a love for science, too. So it's kind of, like, balancing okay. both of them. Okay, that's great. And you? Me, I want to go more into marketing, okay. business. So this was really cool because we're, you know, creating a mini business. So sure. it's helping me learn how to do that. And do you think you've inspired your classmates with kind of your focus and, and uh, development of this idea? I feel like we've inspired them in a way it's like if you have an idea to just go out and do it like instead of just kind of like thinking oh I'm not like good enough to do it or like I'm not ready I'm not prepared it's just kind of like you should just go and try like there's no harm in trying seeing where you end up. Well I am very impressed with both of you and uh, I've got to say it's great that you're showing empathy and compassion for uh, you know foster care kids in our community who probably need love and, and attention more than 
almost anyone else. So uh, congratulations to both of you. Thank you Lily so Moran and Gabby Ransom, Hathaway Brown School, the winners of the Teen Accelerate Contest. Uh, congratulations again. Thank you. Thank you. All right. It's The Sound of Ideas. I'm Jenny Hamill. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to talk about Cleveland State University and its origins, along with the civil rights movement. That conversation is coming up. We'll be right back. It's The Sound of Ideas from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks so much for staying with us. Cleveland State University is celebrating 60 years this month, coinciding with the 60th anniversary of the Civil Rights Act. In commemoration of this anniversary and Black History Month, there is a new exhibit on display at the university's Berkman Hall in the Jack Joseph and Morton Mandel Honors College. It's called Protest to Progress which highlights historical events that were central to Cleveland's part in the national civil rights movement and connects these events to the history of Cleveland State University. The exhibit is a collection of photos, newspaper clippings, and commentary, and it showcases how that history has impacted the direction of the university since its inception leading up to today. Joining me now to tell us more is Ronald Kisner, a Cleveland State University alumna and founder of The Vindicator, which was originally the university's first black student newspaper. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me. And we're joined by phone with Dr. Thomas Bynum, chair of the Department of Africana Studies at Cleveland State University. Welcome to you. Thank you for having me. And if you'd like to join the conversation or have a question for our guests, call the toll-free number. It is 866-578-0903. Once again, 866-578-0903. You can email us at soi at ideastream.org, or you can tweet us. We're at Sound of Ideas. All right, so... Thomas, before we get to the exhibit, can you tell us about the history of your department, the Department of Africana Studies at Cleveland State University? Because my understanding is it's almost as old as the university with roots in the Black Studies program, which was founded in 1969. Yes. um, The Black Studies program at Cleveland State was founded in 1969 under the leadership of Dr. Ralph Pruitt, who served as the first director, um, black students and their allies wanted a college curriculum that focused on black history and culture. And Mr. Ron Kistner was one of those students that was advocating for such a curriculum. Why don't you tell us about that, Ronald? So you were a student? Absolutely. Uh, And thank you, uh, Dr. Bynum, uh, for that uh, kind remark and reference. Yes. uh, So we had an organization called the Society for African-American Unity. We made 10 demands of the university president at the time, who was Harold Innerson. And one of those... What year was it? uh, This was probably around 69. Okay. Yeah, I believe it was 69. 
And uh, one of those demands was for a black studies program. And uh, we were able to, to get that, as well as a black student newspaper, uh, also a black homecoming queen. All of these were first because you have to understand Cleveland State just was founded in 1964. So as all these innovations started happening, uh, this was really creating a, a lot of interest, uh, creating waves. Uh, we had uh, pushback. Uh, I don't want anybody in your listening audience to think this was an easy run because it was not. Uh, well, let's talk more about that. So tell me, first of all, what it looked like optically as a black college student at CSU in 1969. I mean, were the students majority white, I'm assuming, great majority white? <laughs> Well, that's a great question, and you really take me back now. I've got to really dig deep. But well, dig. <laughs> this might be a psych session in a minute because oh. I have to go back to some trauma. But uh, for, for me, first of all, it was a culture shock because I'm coming out of the Cleveland schools, mostly black students. All of a sudden, I'm now at Cleveland State University is this new urban opportunity, but it's mostly white students. And it was in the heat of the 60s. You have to understand, you, you had the riots. You had uh, uh, black power. Stokely Carmichael had declared that. You had black students, black people really coming into what was called their negritude and their selfhood. And all of this was now vomited on Cleveland State University. This new university, we thought, had to have a voice of the black student population. And our organization, uh, SEIU, the acronym, uh, was really, of, uh, really at the forefront of really trying to make those waves and trying to make those conditions uh, very welcoming to, to uh, uh, lesions of black students. And when you're talking about the riots, you're talking about the Glenville and Huff the neighborhood Glenville riots. Glenville and uh, Huff riots. And for me personally, uh, the most tragic thing that happened, the most seminal thing in my life, was the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968, April 4th. And after that, uh, I said, uh, personally, I've got to do something to try to make a difference. And so I joined uh, Seiyu. And then, uh, interestingly enough, the Black Student newspaper was number 10 of the 10 demands. But at that time, I was interested in going into media as a career. I took that uh, as my effort. And I, there was another colleague who was going to work with me on the paper. Unfortunately, he left to go to Cuba because he was involved in the uh, socialist movement at the time. And so I was left with deciding, uh, should I continue on or could, should I just uh, 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 leave it and, and, and not do it? And I decided to dig in deep uh, and, and make the paper work. And 50 years later plus, uh, it's still coming out, not as a black student newspaper, but it's coming out now as a multicultural magazine. So I want to get more into The Vindicator and kind of the origins of the paper, which is now, as you said, this uh, magazine. But I want to ask you, Thomas, I mean, you're hearing Ron talk about his experience as a student at the time. Um, do you think this exemplifies other ways in which Cleveland State University's founding was so analogous to and, and kind of coinciding with the civil rights movement? Absolutely. I was going to say to Mr. Kistner's point that students began fighting for a more inclusive uh, society on college campuses. So it would be a reflection of what was happening in mainstream society during the civil rights movement where African Americans wanted a more inclusive society, where students wanted a curriculum that examined their history and their culture. And so a part of that would be connected to the civil rights movement of the 1960s. After Martin Luther King uh, was assassinated, it provided the momentum that students needed. So really you see this momentum spreading across college campuses 
after the assassination of Dr. King, as Mr. Kistner alluded to, I think it provided students with the impetus that they needed to push for a more inclusive society. Yeah, so Ron, I mean, you were talking about that, that it, that the, the, the assassination of Martin Luther King was uh, the most seminal moment of your life and obviously a galvanizer for you to take action, but it did not come without pushback. So tell me about some of the pushback when you were trying to establish these demands for black students, establish a, a black uh, student-run newspaper on your campus. Well, for example, for the paper... Um there was an organization, uh, the Student Affairs Organization, which funded student organizations. So to give you a quick example, uh, we tried to, uh, the first time we pitched our, our uh, paper, uh, it was denied. We were one vote short of uh, really approving funding for it. So we fought. It was The paper would have originally come out in 1969, but uh, it, we, we lost that one vote. So I had to really campaign. I was lobbying. I didn't know that's what I was doing, but I had to lobby other members of that committee and, and really make my case. And so about six months later, we had another opportunity to go back before the Student Affairs Committee, which I sat on, by the way, and I couldn't vote because I sat on the committee. So the next time it came up for funding, the paper came up for funding, we were able uh, to, to get that funding. And in 1970, January of 1970, that was the first issue of the Cleveland State Vindicator. Some of the pushback we got was from the overall student newspaper called The Cauldron. Uh, they were very um, unkind, uh, I should say, uh, to be kind, uh, unkind uh, editorials, uh, letters to the editor. Uh, the Cauldron itself had a very uh, a very nasty uh, picture, a cartoon, editorial cartoon, mm. uh, that mocked the black homecoming queen and showed a character who was supposed to be the administration, a white fi male figure bent over, and then all these demands in front of him as mm. if the university was caving in uh, to these demands of these black students. This resulted, unfortunately, in the burning of that issue of the Cleveland State uh, of the Cleveland State Cauldron uh, on uh, on the campus grounds. So that was kind of, you got to realize the heat of that era. Uh, there was racial strife everywhere, and it certainly uh, found its way into Cleveland State. But on the progress side, and I don't want to leave that part, Cleveland State, first of all, did accept those most of those demands, and I give them credit for that. And not only that, uh, as you go look into the exhibit, you will see steady progress in how the university responded to some of these demands that we made back in 1968, 69, and 70, and now they've come to fruition today in new programs that are very inclusive uh, and very multicultural. If you went to Cleveland State University during the the civil rights era or have a question uh, for our guests, please call 866-578-0903. We'd love to hear from you or drop us an email at soi at ideastream.org. So it's my understanding, Thomas, that you were at Middle Tennessee State University before coming to S CSU. What was yeah. your experience coming from a university academic uh, environment in the South and then br bringing your experience to Cleveland? Yeah, we... Uh. ...had to fight hard to establish an Africana Studies program at Middle Tennessee State University. Um, I was uh, heading up that initiative. Um, we were able to establish uh, a major in Africana Studies and, and, and a minor 
in Africana Studies at um, Middle Tennessee State. But there was some pushback. Um, some people didn't understand uh, the, the significance of establishing that major. Uh, some people even questioned uh, whether students would have gainful employment. But we know that the skills that students receive, what we call transferable skills, can be applied when they go out and look for jobs. Um, and, and we know that companies are looking for individuals who understand diversity. But it was a harder sell because they wanted more tangible connections to the job market. And we were saying, listen, these, uh, this major, any major in the humanities, really you have to focus on the transferable skills that students walk away with, like good communication, effective writing. Um, so, so those were the kind of things that we noted in our proposal when we were pushing for the creation of Africana Studies major on that campus. And we were successful. Uh, the university did move forward with the creation of the Africana Studies um, major. But, but I wanted to kind of circle back to the 1960 to 1964. Sure. Because the Civil Rights Act of 1964 set the precedent by banning discrimination in education and public accommodation and eventually in employment. So when Cleveland State is founded in 1964, Cleveland State is entering into a watershed moment of the civil rights movement where this particular measure was crucial sure. to the progress of the movement in 1964. But would you say, Thomas, that it was crucial but but obviously was the beginning of uh, testing the uh, laws and making sure that equity and inclusion were actually applied. Yes, absolutely. It didn't change the mindset of individuals overnight, but certainly it created a framework to push for greater change and a more inclusive society. All right. So, Ron, let's talk about the exhibit that people can go and see. Why is the name Protest to Progress so significant? Well, I think it's significant because of what you're hearing uh, Dr. Bynum saying and what I've said earlier uh, about the uh, formation of Cleveland State, uh, how it was birthed. Uh, I think the uh, goal of the exhibit was to show that Cleveland State was not in a vacuum. Cleveland State had its own excitement. It was a very exciting moment when Cleveland State uh, actually came on board because it was a new four-year opportunity right in the heart of the city, uh, and it gave opportunities for students like myself and many others uh, where they possibly might not have had that opportunity due to maybe financing and other reasons. I mean, I wasn't, uh, I always uh, was in academically talented programs, but didn't always take advantage of them. And so uh, I certainly slacked and, uh, and tried to get it together uh, near the time of graduating. And, and then I was wondering, where am I going to go? And then this Cleveland State opened up as a great opportunity. So on that end, uh, it, it was a great opportunity for us. The protest part was the the obvious part the, uh, of all the riots that were happening. Uh, again, as we've said earlier, uh, the racial strife uh, here in the city of Cleveland, there was excitement uh, aside from protests. There was also excitement with a uh, with Carl Stokes's uh, election as the first black mayor of a major U, uh, United States city. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. came here. Malcolm X came here. Uh, Dr. King had a, a famous speech uh, at Glenville High School, That's and it's right. now called the King Speech. 
that's in the exhibit. In fact, there's a QR code that you can uh, wave your camera over and you can actually hear that speech. Uh, Michael, uh, uh, excuse me, Malcolm X uh, did uh, his, his, his famous uh, bullets to the ballot speech. And so all of this is happening in the background while Cleveland State is trying to get its legs, so to speak. Uh, the university had Muhammad Ali visit. Jackie Robinson even visited uh, Cleveland State. So uh, Cle- I think the, 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 the progress part, uh, Rachel, you asked me how it got its name. So we wanted to show how out of all of this protests from the 60s and kind of leading into the 70s a bit was also leading to progress. And one great interest uh, progress to me was to see now the cauldron and the vindicator sharing offices. And when I saw that, I said, you got to be kidding me. Uh, so that right there showed me, wow, there's been a great deal of progress here. And the Cleveland cauldron State. is? Oh, the cauldron is the overall student newspaper. Uh, so of, they're of side Cleveland by State. side. They're, they share office space, uh, office space, which never would have happened when we were students. We were at odds back in the 60s. Ronald Kisner, founder of The Vindicator, which is the black student-run newspaper at Cleveland State University, or was in, in the late late 60s, now in Arts and Culture magazine. And I'm also speaking to Dr. Thomas Bynum, uh, chair of the Department of Africana Studies at Cleveland State University. We are talking about an exhibit currently uh, showing to the public called Protest to Progress, which uh, shows Cleveland State University's history aligned with the civil rights movement. Thomas, I want to ask, your department and the Black Studies program that preceded it have been considered safe havens for CSU students. How do you think the exhibit celebrates the kind of progress while still addressing the controversy of the past? Yeah, I think <clears throat> the exhibit provides um, uh, confirmation in, in many ways that the university values um, our program and that it validates to students who are Africana Studies major that black people have made significant contributions to this to this country and to the world um, and we constantly stress that throughout the curriculum so students can see that um, Africana Studies and black history is not just uh, for black Americans, it's American history, mm-hmm. it's U.S. history, and should be viewed that way. Because yes. more people understand and more people know about this history, we can eliminate some of the ignorance, um, especially uh, the racial stereotypes that exist within society. Um, but just to show the students that people of African descent have made significant contributions um, to this country and to the world. Well, that's key because I wanted to jump in on that, what Dr. Bynum was saying. And I want the audience to know one of the reasons we were pushing for a black studies program is to make sure that it was part of the core academic program for all history majors and not just black students. And I think initially that's how it was seen. But our thrust was to make it a part of the actual fabric of, of the uh, major in history, which, I, as Dr. Bynum said, has, it has become. Uh, the Black Student Newspaper, for example, I thought would be also a springboard 
uh, for black students who might want to go into professional journalism, uh, which I ended up going into uh, because I used uh, part of what I did at uh, uh, The Vindicator uh, to help me get a position at Ebony and Jet magazines, which at the time uh, mm-hmm. were the largest uh, African-American publications in the nation. And I dare say there are alumni members of The Vindicator that even worked for your station uh, at one time. And around the city, uh, I've run into people who said, oh, yes, I've worked at The Vindicator. That's a very proud moment uh, f- for me personally. So, Thomas, I'm curious, what are you hoping mm-hmm. that the public will garner from this exhibit and CSU's past when it comes to the civil rights movement, both its hard times and the progress that's been made? Yeah, I, I would say that um, I hope individual walk away with a sense of pride in the history here at Cleveland State University. But also understand, as Mr. Kistner pointed out, that there has been struggle um, to achieve these goals here on campus. And, um, and we can celebrate both, right? We can celebrate how we've, we've um, evolved over a period of time. We started out as a minor in 1969. Uh, we became a major in 2010. And then in 2022, we can see that progress. We've become a department. And so there has been progress over the years, and we want students to know how important this major is to the academic curriculum, the overall academic curriculum here at at Cleveland State University. All right, Ron, you have 30 seconds. Where can people find this exhibit, and and what do you hope they walk away um, having seen this exhibit with? It's at the Berkman Hall, which I believe is on East 22nd Street uh, on the first floor there. Again, I'm going to just kind of tag team with Dr. Bynum. Uh, I think they'll have a chance to uh, get the the protest part, uh, to see the, the, the flames of the beginnings, uh, how things kind of cooled down and tamped down, and how they were evolving uh, over the years, over the decades. We're talking about six decades of Cleveland State University. Uh, and uh, I, I credit the university for really taking on these challenges. Uh, they have programs there called LINK, and uh, they've got a, n- a new area called Success, which is really uh, aiming itself at trying to su- make successful opportunities, not only for uh, African-American students, but certainly for all students. Ronald Kistner, founder of The Vindicator at Cleveland State University, and Dr. Thomas Bynum, chair of the Department of Africana Studies at Cleveland State University. Thank you to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. To get the last word on today's topic, send an email to soi at ideastream.org. We're on Twitter, now X at Sound of Ideas. You can follow me at Jenny Himmel underscore. Tomorrow on The Sound of Ideas, we'll talk to Worcester Mayor Bob Reynolds for the next in our Get to Neo, a leader series where we talk to mayors and city managers across the region about their community assets and challenges. If you missed any portion of the program, find us online or listen to The Sound of Ideas podcast. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks so much for listening. I'll speak with you again tomorrow.